You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Gene Twangy, who is a professor of psychology at San Diego State University, and also the author of a number of books. The most recent book is called Generations. The real differences between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence, and Polars, I should add, <laughs> although that part is more speculation than anything else. And this builds on two of your earlier books, one called iGen and one called Generation Me. Welcome, Jane. Thank you. So look, this book, I mean, as I said, it kind of builds on these other books because in addition to kind of diving into the differences between all of these different generations. I think you're trying to make some more general claims about generational analysis. Like, what is it? Does it even make sense? <laughs> I think a lot of us kind of take for granted. We use this term generation. We throw it around. It's like your generation, my generation. But it's not clear to most people whether this is a sociological reality or a psychological reality. I mean, ever since... Plato, at least, people have been saying, oh, the youth of today, right? Except that that quote was made up. He didn't actually say <laughs> right. that. So someone someone like made that up for their dissertation <laughs> in the early 20th century. So it always drives me a little nuts when I hear that quote because I know it's apocryphal. I mean, people have always sort of pointed out differences between the old and the young. And then when the young become old, they start griping about the young and so if we're really going to talk about generational differences, then we have to kind of control for age. And this means we need to kind of be historians and we have to go back and look at data. And so I think you've really dug into the data and I think we have probably more access to data than we've ever had. And so, you know, this means that these claims that you're making could be rooted, I think, in some fairly solid research. So I guess maybe the first question I would ask is, what are generations? <laughs> Did they exist in hunter-gatherer times? I mean, you point that out, right? When did generations become a thing? And how do we demarcate generations? I mean, is it a matter of artificial kind of dividing lines within what's fundamentally a continuum? Or does it make sense to find these distinctive markers that introduce discontinuities in how people think about the world. Yeah. Well, you know, the word generations used to be used for, you know, say three generations in the same family means the grandparents, the parents, and the kids. But now the way we use it more often is in terms of social generations, in terms of how when you were born influences your life course and your behaviors and your values and your attitudes. So everybody pretty much agrees that living now is very different from what it was like to live 150 years ago or 50 years ago or even 20 years ago, mostly due to changes in technology. So, you know, by that, yeah, in the thousands and thousands of years of history during hunter-gatherer times, there probably wasn't as much recognition of generations or cultural change because just not as much changed. And so as technological changes sped up, I think there's become more awareness of generational differences. So we start from that premise. That's the piece everybody agrees on. There has definitely been cultural change. Thus, you're going to get some differences among people based on when they were born. So then really what we're debating is how do you understand that? Is it a continuum? Should you put people into categories? You know, what categories are you going to use? This is not a problem that's unique to studying generations. It happens with people who are studying regional differences or people, even a better example is age differences. You know, we group people between the ages of 13 and 19 and call them teens. Are they really the same? No. Are those lines arbitrary? Yes. But it's convenient. It works well for research. And it just makes things easier to talk about the groups. And I think the same is true for the generational groupings. Now, you focus on technology as the main driver of difference, but there are also kind of events, right? So presumably when the Black Death hit, you know, there's probably a big difference between the way in which the people who survived that thought and the people who are born after it. And that was not driven by technology. 
but you focus on the technological differences. Is there a reason to think that technology is the prime driver and not just simply events? I mean, when we think about people who survived the Great Depression, people who survived kind of, you know, World War II, we're probably going to talk about people who survived the COVID-19 pandemic and so forth. Yeah. So that is the common or traditional way to think about generational differences is to say, okay, you know, different generations experience these major events, at different points in their lives. And that's why there's differences. But if you really look at what makes day-to-day life different in the long term, it's not events. It is technology. That is what makes living now completely different from what it was like to live, especially, say, 150 years ago or, say, the time of the Black Death. Well, think about how people responded to that versus during the COVID-19 pandemic when we had all of this technology. And not only did we have vaccines, but we had Zoom and we had electronic communication and people's experience was completely different. Plus, we're coming out of the pandemic now. Long term, you know, what uh, impact is it going to have? Probably some learning deficits on kids. But still, our lives are much more influenced by the fact that we have the internet, that we have better medical care than we used to, that we have labor-saving devices and air conditioning and faster transportation. Those are the things that, that have the biggest impact, not just directly, but also, I argue in the book, indirectly through other big influences like individualism. Technology makes individualism possible, more focus on the self and less on others. And technology also tends to coincide with what's called a slow life strategy, where the whole developmental trajectory slows down because we have more years of life. A life expectancy is longer. Right now, I was wondering if you could tell me more. Why would we think that technological progress would lead to more individualism? I mean, does all technological progress lead to more individualism or is it just a type of technological progress that we've seen in, say, the, the 20th century? I think it's the number of things. I mean, there's two immediate things that come to mind. So first is that, I mean, let's just take labor-saving devices. So we're talking about things like washing machines, indoor plumbing, stoves, you know, things like that. And that makes individualism possible because it makes it easier to live alone and be independent. It frees up a lot of time for women in particular. So that's something that comes with individualism is more opportunity for people regardless of their demographic characteristics like, say, race or gender. And then it also, with that free time, you're not focusing as much on just surviving. You have more time to think about yourself and your place in the world and things like that. So it's not... You know, I I think there are a number of ways that it influences it, even though it's true. There are countries like Japan that have a lot of technology that are also very collectivistic. But there's very, I I can't think of any country that is individualistic and is not industrialized. So you need the technology to have the individualism, even though it doesn't always happen. But presumably there are some cultural aspects to it, right? So as technology progressed within the Soviet Union, (laughs) I mean, it didn't necessarily lead to the kind of individualism that, you know, we have now in in the West, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's certainly other factors. It interacts, you know, with other things in the culture. It's not a coincidence that individualism is, you know, perhaps the strongest in the United States. It's kind of always been that way. It's part of the regional culture as well. Um, And then the other thing you talk about is this kind of life history theory. And I think this is something that we see in biology and in anthropology. So, you know, over time in history, as lives got longer, people would invest more in their children and lives got shorter and they would have earlier childbirth and so forth. And this was sort of, I think, cyclical. You point out that the trends that we're seeing, they don't seem to be cyclical. And therefore, you know, we shouldn't expect generations to go back and forth between these different characteristics. And I think a bunch of times in the book, you point to this alternative theory. There are some folks that I guess got famous for predicting that each generation would go back to the two generations, but we haven't seen that at all. Instead, we see this sort of steady movement. And when I was reading through the book, it seemed like a lot of the characteristics or attributes that we see in, say, Gen X, they seem to be kind of, I don't know, more extreme versions of some of the things that we saw with millennials. And some of the things that we saw with millennials seem to be kind of extensions maybe of what we had with Gen X. 
Yeah. So some of these trends, they're pretty linear. So I think that cyclical theory of generations might have worked for a while, but it started to break down with Gen X and then the wheels really came off with millennials because by that cyclical theory, millennials are supposed to be similar to the greatest generation who fought World War II and they're supposed to be very collectivistic. Not at all. Gen Z, so those after the millennials, was born about 95 to 2012, were supposed to be like the silent generation who married very young and had kids young. Exactly the opposite is going on with Gen Z. So and I think it is technology and individualism and slow life that really broke down any of those cycles and those linear trends really overwhelmed them to create as you said, you know, take it to the next level, that if you look at individualism as a great example, then it has different flavors in different generations, but that linear trend of more individualism keeps going. It kept going, you know, across all really the five generations where we have good data, silence, boomers, Gen Xers, millennials, Gen Z, it has just kept going. Now, I want to talk a bit about Gen X, right? I guess, you know, you and I are both <laughs> part of that generation. I didn't, I don't know when it came. I learned that I was indeed part of a generation, but there's lots of things that people say about this generation. One of the quotes in your book is that this is a generation that is sandwiched between one where nothing is traumatic and one where everything is traumatic. Right? Yeah. And I can't take credit for that. That was someone else who said that, but I thought it was very insightful. Right. So Gen X is also sometimes thought of as the, you know, the forgotten or overlooked generation, because when we look at people in positions of power, they seem to be underrepresented and that the baton seems to be passed from the previous <laughs> onto the next generation. Why is that? And we can actually do data analytics and, you know, we can look and see uh, like per capita representation in Congress, per capita representation in the boardroom. So why is that? Well, it's two things. So first, the baby boomers, right before Gen X, is a very large generation. But that doesn't explain all of it. So there's also that life expectancies are longer and boomers are taking a little longer to retire for the most part. And yeah, that was something I crunched the data on. And you look at the U.S. Senate and you look at governorships and the CEOs of the top 100 companies, you see a lot more boomers and a lot fewer Gen Xers than you'd expect just by population size. So if you look at Gen X and middle age compared to where boomers were at the same age, a lot fewer Gen Xers are in those leadership roles. And I think it is particularly interesting that it's true for companies and not just your politics, because Gen X is kind of known for a little political apathy, but also more likely to major in business as undergraduates than boomers were. So you'd think maybe in corporations is where you'd see that strength. But even there, boomers are hanging on to those leadership roles longer. And I think one of the other things that you point out is that people's sense of subjective well-being over the course of their life is different. So with Gen Xers, they seem to have exactly the opposite trajectory as millennials in terms of how their happiness evolves over time. Why is that? Yeah. And it's hard to say. I think there's a lot of, you know, kind of competing strands there. Some of it is time period effect. There are certain times when everybody is happier, but there's also some intersection with some of these generational differences. But yeah, it's true. You know, Gen Xers as teenagers were pretty unhappy. The suicide rate was really high for Gen Xers when they were teens. But then into middle age, their mental health is just as good and in some cases better than boomers at the same age. So they seem to have worked out, you know, some of the issues. And we haven't seen increases, say, in clinical level depression among Gen Xers in the last 10 years. Millennials, much you know, happier than Gen Xers were as teens. Suicide rate went down when they were young. You know, there's a few signs of some psychosomatic issues, but it's a pretty decent picture for millennials as, as teens and young adults. And then starting around 2015, that started to change. That the, say, rates of poor mental health and depression started to tick up among those in their late 20s and 30s. And, you know, by the time you get to recent years, that's millennials. So something was happening with millennials around 2015, or even though they'd done pretty well with mental health up to that point, things started to fall apart. And I'm not exactly sure what it is. 
It could be high expectations. Millennials had very high expectations. Maybe the world couldn't fulfill them. But if that was the case, we'd expect to see that, say, you know, with those born in the early 1980s as they hit about 30. But that doesn't happen. You don't start to see it until they're more like 35. So that's kind of late. And the younger millennials are also starting to show mental health issues around that time, too. So it seemed to be a time period thing interacting with the millennial generation. I think some of it might have to do with some of the negativity and the toxicity in the culture and in politics, but I'm still open to ideas on that because it's not entirely clear why that occurred. And I want to dig into the technological factors, but you also mentioned sort of tangentially sort of parenting styles. So, you know, the Gen Xers were in many ways kind of neglected, you know, by their parents and sort of set off to fend for themselves, whereas the millennials were much more, you know, I guess you use the term helicopter parenting and I guess snowplow parenting is another term that you sometimes hear about millennials. Is there any connection between parenting style and subjective well-being? And if so, are the parenting styles driven by technology or more by cultural trends? I think in general, you can make a stronger case for technology having more of the impact on mental health because it's true if you really have the true snowplow or helicopter parent who doesn't like that their kids make any decisions and then they're not prepared for adulthood, that's going to be a problem. But if that were the case, again, you'd think those millennials born early 1980s you know, would then hit adulthood and even like, like by 25 and things would fall apart. And that's not really how it looked. Plus, you know, a lot of parents are more in the middle where, yes, they maybe have become more protective, but that's better than being neglected. So there's trade-offs involved in, in every parenting style as well. You know, the involved parent can be a very good thing sometimes in a lot of realms. So it's more of a trade-off. But I think particularly once we get to Gen Z, then I think the impacts of technology become even stronger for mental health. Yeah. Now, when you wrote this book, iGen, this was a while ago. And I think a lot of the claims that you were making were to some degree speculative, but I think pretty much every claim you made in that book has gained greater support from the data as time has gone on. And you highlight these very significant moments of technological change, right? One, of course, is social media. The other one is the introduction of the smartphone. And in many ways, these things are wonderful, but I think you highlight some of the negative consequences of these technologies and their relationship with depression, suicide, and so forth. So why is it that social media and the smartphone have had such a negative impact on people's mental health? There's a number of mechanisms. And, you know, first, just to put it in context for folks, you know, I work with these big data sets of teens and adults. And with the teens, I started to notice with the data around 2012 that more and more started to say they felt lonely and left out and that they felt like they couldn't do anything right, that they didn't enjoy life. And those last two are classic symptoms of depression. And then after that, it was just this cascade of clinical level depression also started to go up around them. Emergency room admissions for self-harm behaviors, which are linked to depression, emergency room visits for suicide attempts, actual suicides just across the board, everything started to get worse in terms of mental health for teens around that time. And you're right, when I wrote iGen, which came out in 2017, there was really only a few years of data. So it started to rise around 2012. And with that book, I only had data up until about 2015 but made the guess based on the timing. Well, the end of 2012 is when the majority of Americans owned a smartphone. It's also around the time that social media use went from optional to virtually mandatory among teens, because it used to be only about half of teens would use social media every day. And around 2012, it crossed over to be about 75 or 80%. At that point, if you're not using it, you're left out. Plus, Right around that time, 2012, teens also started to spend a lot less time with their friends in person. So that had been on a slow decline since about 2000, but it really fell off a cliff in the age of the smartphone. Teens also started spending less time sleeping right around that time. So basically, 
the way they spent their time outside of school fundamentally changed. They started spending a lot more time online, a lot less time with their friends in person, and less time sleeping. And that's not a good formula for mental health. So that's one of the mechanisms. And there's all of the others of all of the negative content that people come across on social media, cyberbullying, the social comparison because everybody else's life is more glamorous, body image issues, which have been well-documented, including by the company Facebook themselves, who owns Instagram, found that Instagram led to body image issues among teen girls and young women. So there's all of these mechanisms that the end result is more depression. So maybe we can dig into this a little bit deeper. You know, social media is presumably a way for you to expand your social network and expand the amount of time you interact with people. And so I don't think anybody ex ante expected that it would have these negative consequences. I mean, social comparison is what kids have been doing since the beginning of history, right? I mean, you show up and everybody compares who's got the cool shoes and who's got the cool look and who's got the cool boyfriend or girlfriend. So why is this worse than the kind of social comparison that goes on in the flesh? Well, it's that stuff you describe. For, for one thing, now it's a number. How many followers do you have? How many likes did you get on that post? You know, what comments are people making? So, you know, Instagram, it bases a platform where teen girls and young women post pictures of themselves, often scantily clad, and invite people to comment. It's really not that shocking you get mental health issues, you know, when you put it that way, and that's what it is. Plus, you know, in a high school environment, before social media, maybe a few people would see those shoes or hear about the party, you know, discussed, say, in the hallway on a Monday morning. Now, everybody can see the pictures of the party in real time when they're sitting at home alone in their bedroom to when they weren't invited. So there's greater transparency and the extremes, in other words, the the competition is more fierce. I think it's some of both. And in this case, I'm not sure I'd call it transparency. It's more like there's all of this information out there and a lot of it is not information that makes you feel good about yourself. And there seems to be, there's a difference in gender, right? So it's been more negative on females than on males. Now, normally we would think that, you know, inter-male comparison is going to be just as aggressive and perhaps just as harmful, if not more harmful, right? I mean, we've seen in societies where there's lots of instability and extreme social hierarchies that it's usually the male health that suffers. So why does it seem to be more severe with the girls and the boys? Well, male competition and bullying is usually physical. Female competition and bullying is verbal. So social media is a perfect storm for female status and competition. Now, the other thing I think you highlight is that, you know, there's a bit of a prisoner's dilemma here, right? Because if you want your kids to stay healthy, you should perhaps think about withholding access to these tools. But it's virtually impossible. I mean, I know a lot of people with young kids and I say, look, would you give your kids crack? <laughs> would you give your kids heroin? And they're like, no, of course not. But then, you know, why are you giving them the phone? But if you decide unilaterally to withdraw your child from these environments, I mean, that's not really possible when parents say, oh, we can't do that. Sure it is. Of course it's possible. Yeah, it's possible. I've, okay, so I have three kids. They're 16, 13, and 11. And I'm not going to claim perfection. I'll start by saying that. However, it is absolutely possible. So you can put off giving your kid a smartphone as long as possible. So my 16-year-old had a flip phone until a month ago. Even the smartphone she has now, she can't download apps. So even though she is 16, we don't think social media is a good thing for her to have. She's got a great group of friends. And so she keeps in touch with them through things like group text, which don't have the pressures of social media. And do her friends also stay out of this or or are they participating? Do they have to find a group of other like-minded kids and parents to build community or do your daughters feel like they're left out? For the most part, they haven't really felt left out. So my 16-year-old, for example, she's very open about talking about this, which is why I can talk about her. You know, I think some of her friends have social media, but they're fine with the fact that she doesn't. And that flip phone, I mean, really became part of her identity. Like it was a joke among her friends. So she would still do things like Skype and so on, like on her laptop, if she wanted to have that, 
you know, a conversation with a friend with video, but she kind of became known as the one who had the flip phone. It was almost a point of pride with her for a while. Then it broke and we had to tape it together. Plus she had a driver's license and having the maps app was awfully convenient, but we weren't going to hand that phone to her with no regulation on it. So it doesn't work, you know, when she's supposed to be sleeping and you can't download apps and all of, you know, so we just tried to put the guardrails on. Do you think that we're just going through a period of temporary adjustment where, you know, most people just are unaware of the harmful consequences and when they become more aware, they will start to implement these kinds of guardrails like you have with your children? I think we're already there now. There's bipartisan support for regulating social media now. Utah just passed a law about having to have parental permission for social media and having to be 16. And there's all kinds of lawsuits that are being brought against social media companies. And full disclosure, I've consulted on some of those. So we'll see where it goes, but there's definitely some movement on this. Mm-hmm. Now, the other trends that you point to have to do with lack of physical interaction. So you know, even if you're not doing social media, if you're, say, playing video games, you're not doing face-to-face. You know, I know a lot of young boys, they socialize on video game platforms. They play Roblox or something, and they seem to be interacting socially, but it's just not in the flesh. And so is that harmful? The lack of, I mean, I was walking past some college kids walking to my house the other day, and I overheard them having a conversation. And one of them said, I don't know how to talk to people. And I thought, well, I guess, you know, if you never have to talk to people, then not being able to talk to people isn't really a handicap, right? Yeah, but then you get into the workplace and you're working with other generations and just the workplace in general, you're going to have to talk to people. So, you know, gaming is not as linked to depression as social media use, maybe because it is in real time. And so they are talking to each other, even if they're not in the same room. But, you know, yeah, if you're doing that eight hours a day and then you're not spending as much time with friends in person or enough time sleeping, then it can also obviously be problematic. But three hours of gaming does not look to be the equal for depression that three hours of social media use are from the data we have. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about kind of lack of exercise, lack of sleep, right, we know the harmful consequences of these things. I mean, it seems like that's something that can't persist. At some point, people will come to a realization that this is unhealthy and adjust, or will they? Well, I think one problem is that the social media companies have poured millions, if not billions of dollars into their algorithms to make sure people spend as much time as possible on their apps. So, you know, I'm sometimes get a little frustrated when people kind of frame this in terms of, well, let's just have a conversation with kids. Like, do you realize what you're up against? When you suggest that, oh, let's just talk about it. I don't know. I'm not convinced that will work. Right. Now, the reason why you talk about generations and not just children is that the things that shape the child's life tend to persist throughout adult life, right? So when you talk about continual social media use and depression, I mean, these things persist into young adulthood, right? They do. And that's what we started to see is a few years after clinical level depression rose among teens, it started to rise among young adults as that young adults became Gen Z and that transition, that generational transition occurred. And, you know, that's the concern because the earlier someone experiences their first episode of depression, the more likely it is that they'll be depressed later in life. So, I mean, it would be concerning enough already that we had so many teens who are depressed and self-harming and taking their own lives. But this is also might be something that will carry into the future as well. And of course, this is one of the key differences between millennials and Gen Z, because, you know, millennials seem to be very optimistic, right? I mean, they would find all sorts of things in the world frustrating. You know, I've been teaching for you know 35 years, so I, I've taught people over time. And with the millennials, I always found them very charming. I mean, yes, they were super frustrated with the life that they found and all the inefficiencies and things that made no sense. But I think they were fundamentally optimistic that they would be able to, you know, lead the charge and fix things and overcome or overthrow anything that that didn't make sense. And I like the fact that they were demanding, you know, they had high expectations and that they wanted the best. But the Gen Z, it seems they are in many ways 
fatalistic, right? Sort of pessimistic. They, you talk about kind of external locus of control. And this, this is very worrisome, right? Because if you have an external locus of control, it means that you just see yourself as, you know, you have a lack of agency. So what accounts for that change? Is it simply that millennials did not have the access to these things you just discussed at an earlier date? That might be at the root of it because depression isn't just about emotions. It's about cognition. It's about how you see the world. And so when more people are depressed, then you'll get that as we do between millennials and Gen Z, that shift from optimism to pessimism. And, you know, pessimism and negativity are not all bad. If they're channeled into action, they can be a good thing. And Gen Z is voting at higher rates than millennials and Gen Xers did when they were young adults. So if they are going to have some political activism and participation, that could be a very good outcome. But the problem is it's often paired with that external locus of control, which means it's the attitude of like, doesn't matter what I do, things are just going to be terrible. So it's almost, it's nihilism. And then when you get that, then, you know, you get either apathy, doesn't look like that's what's happening. But my fear is there's some, you know, poll evidence to suggest that it's not just negativity, it's radicalism in the idea of let's just tear the whole thing down and start over. And so I think that for a lot of older generations, that's concerning. If it's not just going to be let's change things, but let's completely start over, I don't know how that's going to go. Well, you point to an increasing trend across these generations towards what seems to be a pessimism that is data resistant. In the sense that everyone thinks the crime rate's going up, even when it's going down. Everybody thinks that their opportunities are going down when they're going up. Everybody thinks that discrimination is going up, even if it's going down. So the way to kind of convince people is not to show them data, right? I mean, that's one thing we know. And so is this gap between the perception and reality something which has consequences for their long-term kind of career outcomes, long-term health outcomes? It certainly might. You know, if depression continues, there's physical health correlates to depression. So that's really depression talking, right? The idea that you feel unsettled, you feel depressed, and then you start trying to come up with an explanation. And so, you know, you're not going to come up with the explanation that I'm using too much social media. You're going to come up with the explanation that the world is a hostile place and that, you know, that no one has my back and that these trends are going in the wrong direction. Yeah. And I think that's basically what has happened. I think it's having a big impact on, you know, the national conversation and the political atmosphere. And it's spreading, you know, up the age scale too. It's not just Gen Z who's pessimistic anymore. It's also millennials. It's starting to be Gen Xers too, just thinking that the things are really awful. And when you talk to people about that, they're like, but things are awful. And then, okay, but are things right now really worse than they were in March 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic? Are they really worse than they were during the Great Recession? Are they really worse than they were in the 80s when we thought that Russia was going to drop the bomb any day and the world was going to end? I mean, you can, you can take this back even further to the Great Depression or World War II or things like that when... The Black Death. <laughs> like right, as you're we just saying. Yeah, exactly. You know, you could make this argument about any time. Every time has its challenges. And I don't know, I just have a lot of skepticism around the idea that this particular time is uniquely bad. I think it's more that we have a uniquely negative view. We still need to figure out why everybody is in such a bad mood, not to, you know, be flippant about it, but it's true. There's just so much negativity out there. And I think social media has something to do with that. I'm sure there's other, you know, elements as well, but I think that's a lot of it. It just... Because negative news gets clicks, and so that's what tends to get written about. And now, because it's story by story instead of the whole newspaper, it gets rewarded even more. And then the discussion of issues on Twitter, on you know newspaper comment sites, and just anything tends to tilt toward the negative. Because it's really rare for anybody to go on Twitter and say, oh, but things are really great. You know, my salary is good, and my generation is doing really well. It just doesn't happen. There seems to be this pull toward negativity, I think, because that is, seems to be what's popular. It's what does well and gets clicks. 
And that seems to really be coloring everyone's perception. Yeah. And you highlight how, you know, the current generation of, say, college kids, they think that they will never be able to attain the wealth levels that their parents had. Millennials also said the same thing. And of course, they have surpassed, right? I was actually kind of surprised by that data because it went so contrary to the narrative. And, you know, I have younger relatives who are always saying that. But when I look at how much they're earning, they're earning way more than I was when I was their age, even in real terms. You know, when I was their age, I was broke and they're making pretty good money. So, you know, this pessimism has other kind of, and depression has other spillover effects, including fertility, right? And this was another thing that was interesting to me. You know, we've seen this constant decline in fertility, but what you highlight is not just the decline in fertility, but the decline in intention to be fertile. So while the millennials had very few children, when they were in college, they had the intent to have lots of children. They just never acted on it. Whereas the Gen Z, they don't even have the intent (laughs) to have children. And, you know, they'll offer reasons like, uh, you know, global warming or so forth. But I think it probably fundamentally flows from this lack of optimism, lack of feeling of community and so forth. Yeah, I think it does. I mean, people have children when they're optimistic and Gen Z is not optimistic. And yeah, you know, at 18, one of the big surveys asked, you know, how likely it is that you'll have children. And that number was high and very stable since the 1970s until you get the transition to Gen Z around 2012 or so, and then it starts to fall. So I think that means that the fertility rate will continue to go down. And right now it's below replacement. So 2.1 is total fertility is replacement. And it's now at 1.6, I think. And I don't think it's going to come back up. I mean, Roe versus Wade getting repealed puts a little bit of a wrench in that but I still think it's not going to come up in any significant way. Now, another trend that you point to is around kind of gender fluidity and a sexual orientation kind of fluidity. And some people would say that this just reflects a greater openness, greater comfort with non-conforming identities and narratives. Could it reflect something else? I think we really don't know. The data are really, I mean, just huge changes and really fascinating that among young adults, the percentage identifying as transgender quadrupled between 2014 and 2021, and it barely changed at all among older generations. So those 27 and older, there was very little change. So that suggests that whatever's going on, it's mostly occurring among Gen Z young adults. And... The other thing that was interesting is that shift in young adults identifying as trans was virtually identical in red states and in blue states. So it's not a regional phenomenon, it's national. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this could be consistent with the trend towards greater individualism, right? Where people are carving out, you know, unique uh, identities. But social media, one of the things that I've seen in the research around preferences for media, you know, music and books is that we actually see greater kind of correlation or greater herding. And so, you know, social media can sometimes create bubbles in the stock market and, and accelerate kind of trends that are conforming trends. So, you know, are these sorts of things driven by technology that facilitates the spread of ideas or is it kind of more individualistic? trend that allows people to, you know, express themselves more authentically? I think it's probably some of both. Individualism definitely pulls for that. It says, you know, you should be who you are. And I think that Gen Z has their own flavor of that. And one flavor of that is a lot more fluidity around gender identity. And certainly the internet and social media may play a role here as well in terms of people finding communities and finding information online. I mean, because, you know, we're talking about extended childhood and extended adolescence where one doesn't really have to start assuming a lot of responsibilities until later in life, right? Certainly not marrying until later in life. But it seems like with respect to identity, one is expected to choose that much earlier in life. Whereas perhaps in the past, you know, you were 
given a set of expectations and a, here's the template and <laughs> you gotta, you gotta follow the template. So that seems like a combination of certain adult responsibilities with this prolonged childhood. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly the observation that there's just more choice. And that's one of the dilemmas uh, of individualism, particularly for young adults. There's a lot more freedom, not as much restriction, you know, on what, I mean, it's just one example, like what you're going to do for your career. You know, it used to be that was not exclusively, but certainly heavily influenced by your race and your gender. And that's not true as much anymore. So it, it opens up, you know, many more possibilities. It also means, though, that there's a lot of choices, and that can sometimes you know, be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Now, I remember someone told me recently that we had a psychiatrist on staff at my business school and that he was busy all the time, that he was 100% booked. And, you know, you had to wait weeks to get to see this guy. And, you know, I, of course, I remember, I guess this is a Gen X thing, but when I was in college, at one point I thought I should see a psychiatrist. I was like worried about procrastination and so forth. And so finally I got, I went to see this psychiatrist and I think I was one of probably a thousand <laughs> that went to see a psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist said, oh, you're doing fine. You're, you know, you're getting A's. Now get out of my office. I don't want to see you again. Right. And I, you know, so sometimes I think when Gen X people encounter folks from younger generations, they kind of don't understand why people can't just tough it out. I mean, that was one of the trends that you pointed to that Gen X people are, you know, more, I guess, resilient or tough, or at least have that belief that one should be tough in some way. So to what extent is the rise in depression in the data simply an acknowledgement that it's okay to have mental health issues? Well, we know for sure that just more willingness to admit to symptoms or more willingness to admit to problems doesn't explain the rise in mental health issues. Because if it was just that, you wouldn't see the rise in emergency room visits for self-harm or suicide attempts, or completed suicides. And not only is there also that rise, but the pattern is just about exactly the same as the reports of symptoms. I mean, plus the reports of symptoms are on anonymous surveys, and several of these anonymous surveys are designed to assess underage drug and alcohol use, all of which is illegal. So they take very, very careful steps to ensure just how anonymous it is. So, you know, we don't have the ability to kind of go back and do longitudinal studies that would measure, you know, glucocorticoid levels or anything like that. So there's always this, you know, measurement problem when we're trying to do longitudinal analyses of mental health or subjective well-being. So you mean timeline yeah. because longitudinal would follow the same group of people over time. And so this we're looking at people of the same age at different points in time. Right. So, but we don't have any way of doing either, right? Because there's always this issue with, you know, how we measure this stuff. So how do you disentangle? And, you know, obviously suicide, one would think that suicide attempts and successful suicides, that's probably not subject to any kind of or, you know, to less measurement error than, say, diagnoses of depression. But when you're going through all of this data, how do you disentangle the diagnosis problems and measurement problems from the underlying phenomenon? Well, basically, none of this looks at diagnosis. So it's not looking at people who, you know, show up to the doctor. It's looking at a cross-section of the population. So we can rule out that piece. And then for measurement, you just have to, I mean, one basic step, is to try to find surveys where the same questions have been asked over time and they've asked them in the same way with the same response choices. And most of what I looked at in the book, that was the case. Every once in a while, you do get places where they change it and then you're like, okay. And then for me, most of the time, then it just, it becomes unusable for exactly what you're saying. That If you've changed the response choices, say that you really can't compare the responses over time, you really have to have the same questions asked in the same way. Yeah. Now, there are a couple other trends, one of which is the decline in religion. And, you know, this seems to have accelerated. I mean, for at least a short while, America was distinct from most other Western countries by being very religious. But it seems like within a single generation, that distinctiveness is fading. How rapid is the decline in religion? I mean, I certainly think that COVID has accelerated a lot of these trends. And I think, you know, church attendance is something which is 
seen a rapid decline since COVID. But it, I think that trend preceded COVID. Yeah, it did. I mean, if you look at, especially at teens and young adults, the declines in people identifying or affiliating with a religion and then the declines in service attendance started in the 90s. And for a while, the idea was, oh, it was just affiliation. It's just service attendance and that private religious observance, things like believing in God or praying, that those were still the same. Then those started to go down as well, especially among young adults. Then the idea was, oh, young adults are just replacing religion with spirituality. That doesn't hold up either. We don't have a ton of data on spirituality, but what we do have suggests that it has not increased. So it has not replaced religion. And then there was the idea of, oh, millennials, you know, they're moving away from religion, but they'll come back once they have children. And that didn't happen either. So, you know, none of these kind of qualifications on this idea really held up. And so we just have the continued decline in people either participating in religion publicly, but also participating privately. So like if you, within a family, within a company, you've got a couple different generations coexisting. When you get posted abroad with a company, they'll oftentimes run you through a kind of cultural awareness you know, workshop. So, okay, here's how Japanese culture works, right? You know, you need to understand the basics. But it, it doesn't seem like if you're at the workplace, you get any kind of training in, you know, dealing with people from other generations. And to some extent, they may be more foreign to you than people from other countries. So what are companies doing to try to make it easier for these folks to work together when they have such radically different expectations and views of the world? Yeah. Well, it's tough because I think there are a lot of companies that are aware of this issue, but and they do have trainings, but a lot of those trainings are not based on data. A lot of them are based on stereotypes or guesses, or sometimes if they have data, it's based on one-time polls that can't distinguish age from generation. I've seen plenty that do that. And it's really unfortunate because we're in the age of big data right now. We do not need to guess. I mean, it was actually one of the reasons that I wrote this book is to just try to take all of that data that we have, including all of that that goes back decades and say, okay, let's separate the myths from the realities. What are the real differences? And that's really a starting point. It's a starting point for the workplace, for relationships, for just understanding each other in general. So that's a good place to start with the actual data that we've got and then you know put that into practice you know always with the caveat that of course there's plenty of variation within each generation you can't automatically make an assumption okay this person's a millennial so they're going to be a typical millennial but it does you know help people understand the different viewpoints of the generations and just take a step back and realize you know, this person did not have the same experiences growing up that I did I think it has to go both ways, too. It's very common for older generations to read about the younger one and try to understand them. It doesn't happen as much the other way. Younger generations often don't have a lot of interest in older generations. They're like, oh, they're dumb. Well, if this person's your boss, I think you might want to try to have a little bit of understanding about how their experience has been different from yours. It will benefit everybody. So it is really where I start with all of this research. That really is the goal. We just understand each other better as much as possible. Now, what about the educational environment? So, you know, you're a teacher. And, uh, you know, this is where I think, it, you know, you've run into some problems. I mean, I am teaching now, I guess, folks that are sort of at the tail end of the millennials and some of whom are deep into to Gen Z. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the classroom is just a very different place where it's almost impossible to get people to, you know, put away their phones. It's almost impossible to get them to sit still for more than a few minutes. It's almost impossible to, you know, have comfortable disagreement, right? That's another issue that comes up, not just between the faculty and the students, but just trying to get the students to, you know, engage in some robust, productive disagreement. So how have you navigated that? How do you manage your classroom, do you say, hey, look, I'm going to take these perspectives from the Stone Age and we're going to spend two hours pretending like we're in, you know, in the 1990s? Or are you more accommodating towards these different ways of interacting? So I teach very large lecture classes. So it's probably a little different from the experience that you've had. But I have absolutely noticed the shift from millennials to Gen Z. So my Gen Z students are not as willing to talk in class. 
and they're not as confident, but they're very nice and they're not as entitled. So it's trade-offs, right? And I think that the hardest part in a large lecture situation is the technology and the phones being a distraction. And I have some colleagues who say, okay, you can't even have your laptop. We're going to get rid of all technology. And I have not gone that far. I have just had the discussion of, you know, we are here once a week. My class is hybrid. It's online the other day of the week. And I'm not going to post this lecture online because I want you to be here. So be present. And this is going to be our time. And that, that usually works reasonably well. I don't think it's the solution for high school, by the way. <laughs> there, I think getting the phones out of the classroom entirely is probably better. But I have a lot of students who are, you know, in their late 20s, not just their early 20s. So they are adults. And for the most part, they have not betrayed that trust. There's always, I, I think there's always one, you know, and it's the most demoralizing thing as a teacher or a lecturer, I think, to look out and see that one person who's staring at their phone instead of listening to you. And I think students don't always realize just how demoralizing that is for faculty. Mm -hmm. And for your children, is it really important to have an awareness of the kind of contingency? I mean, I think the most important thing is to understand the contingency of your perspective, right? Because it's clear that no one generation has a monopoly on the right way to look at things, right? So is it most important to be aware and then maybe cherry pick the best of, you know, each of these generational perspectives? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think in a family, it's just, yeah, having that understanding, they're not growing up the same way and that there's both advantages and disadvantages to that. So, you know, the disadvantage, I think for a lot of kids and teens now is too much technology, but they are also safer. They're less likely to drink alcohol and have sex than Gen Xers were at the same age. So there's always Mm trade-offs. Well, Gene, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this book, Generations. It's not just social scientific study of the different generations, but it's also, I think there's a little bit of a how-to in there. I think it, it sort of helps you as an anthropologist who wanders between generations as part of your career as, or as part of your family life. It helps to bring some perspective to it. So thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.